Hello and welcome. You found the Social Work Podcast. My name is Jonathan Singer, and I'll be your host as we explore all things social work. Today's episode of the Social Work Podcast is on research. Okay, wait, don't turn it off. Give me a chance to pitch it to you. Why did you get into social work in the first place? No, I mean, really, like, tell me. Like, as you're on the treadmill or in the bus or in the car or in the computer lab or at your agency, just say it right out loud right now. One, two, three, go. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Okay, so I just heard from about 100,000 of you at the same time, and you all basically gave me the same answer. The paycheck. What? Oh, (laughs) I'm sorry. My producer just tapped me on the shoulder and said that we had some crossfeed with the Motley Fool podcast. What you actually said is that you wanted to make a difference in the world. That's why you got into social work. At some point in your life, you said, there is a problem out there and I want to be part of the solution. Still with me? Okay, excellent. Research. Wait, don't go anywhere. Research is how we document that we're actually making a difference. You can't just say, this works, trust me. Remember the D.A.R.E. program? Police officers came to schools, gave out black t-shirts with red letters, and claimed that their program helped to keep kids off drugs? So, after spending nearly half a billion U.S. taxpayer dollars to provide this program, researchers evaluated D.A.R.E., and learned that the kids who went through the D.A.R.E. program were no less likely to use drugs than kids who did not go through the D.A.R.E. program. So, if you were a school social worker passionate about keeping kids off of drugs and you advocated for your school to pay for D.A.R.E. instead of providing other services, you would have been sold a bill of goods. In part because of the debacle like D.A.R.E., Funders are requiring community groups to demonstrate that what they're doing works. Research. So, if you got into social work because you wanted to make a difference, then at some point you have to make peace with the fact that research is the way to document that you're making a difference. So, why are so many students and practitioners totally turned off by the idea of research? And why do so many researchers seem to be totally dispassionate about social problems? My guests suggest that one of the places where the disconnect occurs is in the classroom. Students come in passionate about problems, but what they learn about is research methods. For example, you're passionate about improving the quality of life of people with schizophrenia. But instead of building on that passion, your research class focuses on how you are operationalizing quality of life, how you are establishing who has schizophrenia, what measures you're using, the setting, type and duration of intervention, exclusion criteria, and potential sources for funding. Your research professor is going to want to know if you're going to compare changes between two groups of people, like you do in ANOVA, Or are you predicting the likelihood that somebody will be successful in a certain program? In which case, you'll probably want to do a regression. Now, if you find that your brain is turning off as I'm talking about these research concepts, then this episode is for you. And if you find yourself getting excited by these research concepts, then this episode is definitely for you. And if you're an advocate or a practitioner who has found the experience of working with researchers to be completely confusing 
and or frustrating, this episode is for you. Basically, this episode is for everyone. Today's episode is about how to balance the demands of doing good research with the passion that practitioners and advocates have for addressing the social problems that face their communities. My guests are Corey Shadema and Sandy Schramm. Dr. Shadema's research and writing focuses on how people respond and adapt to policies and programs that they perceive as ineffective or unjust. And she uses primarily qualitative research methods to investigate these responses in housing-related child welfare decisions, court responses to truancy, and, most recently, alternative criminal justice responses to prostitution. Dr. Schramm's research and writing focuses on social theory and policy, and he's written or edited 12 books. He's the only scholar to have won the Michael Harrington Award from the American Political Science Association twice. First, for his 1995 book, Words of Welfare, The Poverty of Social Science and the Social Science of Poverty, published by the University of Minnesota Press. And his most recent book, Disciplining the Poor, Neoliberal Paternalism and the Persistent Power of Race, published in 2011 by the University of Chicago Press. Dr. Schramm is the 2012 recipient of the Charles McCoy Career Achievement Award from the American Political Science Association. Dr. Shadema and Schramm, along with Dr. Roland Stahl, co-authored the 2011 text that's the focus of today's interview, Change Research, a case study on collaborative methods for social workers and advocates, published by Columbia University Press. In today's Social Work podcast, Corey and Sandy distinguish between participatory action research, PAR, and community-based participatory research, CBPR. And they talk about why they use PAR rather than CBPR in their work with communities. They give examples of how challenging it is to actually do PAR. They talk about the need to bridge the gap between research and practice and how that was one of their motivations for writing their text, Change Research. Throughout our conversation, Sandy and Corey bring up lots of ideas that are perfect discussion points for research classes, both at the master's and doctoral level. And they use lots of big words, and they throw around lots of big ideas. And you can still tell that they are passionate about making the world a better place. For those of you interested in learning more about doing the kind of community-based change research that we talk about in today's episode, I posted a list of resources on socialworkpodcast.com that Corey very generously provided. If you want to connect with other social workers, you can do that at the Social Work Podcast Facebook page at facebook.com slash swpodcast, where you can follow the Twitter feed at Social Work Podcast. You can listen to the Social Work Podcast from socialworkpodcast.com by downloading the episodes through iTunes or any number of other apps, or you can stream the 10 most recent episodes right from your mobile device using the Stitcher Radio mobile app. Now, one quick note about the interview. I recorded it at Sandy's beautiful house in Philadelphia in November of 2011, right after their book was published. At the time of the interview, Corey was a not-yet-tenured assistant professor at the University of Maryland at Baltimore. She has since been awarded tenure and promoted to associate professor. Congratulations, Corey. And now, without further ado, on to episode 82 of the Social Work Podcast, The Challenges and Rewards of Collaborative Community-Based Social Work Research, 
an interview with Corey Shadema and Sanford Schramm. Corey, Sandy, thank you so much for being here today and talking on the Social Work Podcast about your book, Change Research. The first question that I have is, so in your book, you dis- you distinguish between community-based participatory research and participatory action research. Can you tell us what the difference is? Community-based participatory research is relatively new. Um, it comes out of the public health research. Um, When I say relatively new, probably the past 15 years um, and starting to take, you know, definitely very, very popular right now. And I would say in, in its most idealistic models, it does take the input of people who are affected by problems um, seriously in terms of research and how we should do research in order to engage them in solutions. However, if you look, and, we, and for the book, we actually did a review of journal articles, for example, published on community-based research. It's very hard to avoid the feeling that community-based research is not necessarily community-driven, that it is largely researchers who involve the community in order to understand how to get them to be more compliant, how to get them to be more with the program. It's largely focused on problems that are very, very important problems. I don't want to diminish the importance in, in the book. We talk about this as well. You know, we're, we're addressing, let's say, obesity or cancer or things that affect people but very much focus on individualized, medicalized understandings of problems, the sources of the problems, and understandings of how to solve them, right? So how do we get low-income minority women to go get mammograms, screen themselves for breast cancer, to eat better, those kind of things? And I see very little evidence of people doing community-based participatory research where they involve the community in all aspects. So for example, if we're trying to think about asthma prevention, have we gone into a community and said to them, what do you think about that? Maybe they'll say, I wish the factories were located somewhere else, right? But really what most of it is, are we trying to get them to, you know, have people stop smoking in homes or, you know, how to do preventative treatments, but not really address systemic issues. And so I think that the that to me says we haven't really asked people what do they want to see in their communities. We're looking at fairly narrow parameters that researchers are setting. And so when they invite the community in, there are decisions that have already been made. Again, there are exceptions to this rule. And I think that, you know, some of the broadest community participatory decisions um, or ideal um, programs really set broader parameters for participation, but most of the projects that we're seeing are individualized and do not involve community except really to the extent of how can we get them to get on board with the program that we've set. The participatory action research um, really comes out of a model from the 70s, and it actually has an ethical and a moral base. Okay, I'm not engaging the community in order to think about how to be more effective. I'm engaging the community or people that are affected by a problem because I am morally obligated to do so, right? I'm going to come up with recommendations that are going to impact people's lives. And it's really not ethically responsible for me to do that without talking to them. And I think that that moral basis makes a very big difference in how we approach people. People know when they're being approached instrumentally, right, as a means to a goal, rather than, you know, I have a firm belief that you should have a say in what affects you. And I think that that moral basis is much more in line with social work values. 
So we can do participatory-based research, but really we should be doing it only if it comes from that moral base. The other thing that I like about participatory action research is we have those pieces of participation, right? And that's full participation because I'm morally obligated to involve you at whatever stages you want to be involved, setting the questions, determining what kind of research to do, thinking about how to interpret, thinking about how to use the research. And that's where the action piece, right? I'm doing research, again, like we've said, not for its own sake, but I know from the beginning that I want something to come from it. I want there to be an action that comes out of it. And generally that action is where advocates really have their their competence and skills, where, where researchers don't. And so it also points more to, to a collaboration that recognizes the different skill sets and the different um, expertise that researchers and advocates bring to the table. And it puts them, I think, um, more on par. <laughs> um, and I think that that's the other thing that I find appealing and different about par when we're thinking about research with advocates or when we're thinking about research with communities. And, and I, I see them as fundamental differences. It's not just a language thing. It's not just, oh, this is the 70s and now we're up, you know, and it's, it's uh, you know, after 2000 and we need to think differently. But I really think we need to think about what is the reason why we're doing this and and, and that that discussion matters. So you're really advocating uh, for participatory action research par as the approach uh, if if you if you're truly engaging with the community uh, with what the community wants at the problem level at the how do we go about this and what are we looking to get out of this rather than the CBPR which you're describing as how can we get buy-in Mm-hmm. from a community to better achieve our goals mm-hmm. as academics, as researchers, as policymakers, that sort of thing. Yeah, I think that's true. I think, again, it goes back to whether or not we're interested in knowledge for its own sake and we're preoccupied with method-driven research versus knowledge that's going to serve the community and we're interested in problem-driven research that's going to inform a community's efforts to address the problems they're struggling with. Ultimately, it's about control. So uh, a lot of people in the research community are saying, look, if you're going to do real participatory action research, you're going to lose credibility, your your research is not going to have its own integrity, you're going to lose control, and the result is you're not going to be able to determine whether the research was done properly, whether or not the interpretations are objective, whether or not you're really being scientific, so on and so forth. What they're, I think they're missing there is that by giving up control in a participatory action project where your partners from the community are the ones that are in control, they're setting the agenda. This is our problem. This is what we're struggling with. This is how we see research fitting in. We like the research conducted in a credible fashion, but to serve our efforts to address that problem. When you give them control, what you're actually gaining is a lot of local knowledge that is intimately familiar with the problem they're struggling with. And you as a researcher are learning that much more. And you're in a position now to participate in a project that is much more informed about what the problem is and how it ought to be addressed and how it ought to be researched. So I think uh, there's power to be gained in giving up control and being in alliance with the community that's going to not just help serve the community, but make your research better. So how did that play out in the project you were involved in? Well, I, you know, I think 
having said what I just said, I mean, in all honesty, and uh, and I hope people read the book and enjoy this, the story we tell, because it's not easy. In other words, anything that's worth doing and doing well uh, is difficult. And, and uh, community... Uh, based research, participatory action research, if you're going to do it really well and really be in alliance with people, there are challenges. It's just like doing any other kind of research. There's a good way to do it and there's a bad way to do it. And we were really committed to working with our community partners uh, to have a, a genuinely participatory action research project that could inform uh, their efforts in trying to make a difference uh, on these housing issues in Philadelphia. And there were times when we said, well, we can't do that. Or there are times when we say, well, you're asking me to do things that uh, as a researcher is not really a good idea to do. And there were tensions and there were struggles. And, you know, we, as Corey said, we all had different roles. So the community advocates had their roles, the researchers had their roles. And at times, it, as everyone was preoccupied with trying to fulfill their role as well as they could, would come into conflict, uh, and we would have to struggle with that. And we tell that story on how we work that out. And ultimately, what it's about is relationships and trust and uh, uh, respect. And these are things that we often don't talk about when we talk about research, but they're central. Yeah, and I can actually give an example that we talk about in the book on this. So one thing was actually our advocate partners knew a lot more about this area than we did, right? None of us were housing researchers, and we talked about, you know, in some ways how that gave them leverage, and, and it made us more attractive to them. Um, we were good researchers. You know, we knew what we were doing in terms of our craft, and we had worked in, in similar areas. But so... We would visit people's homes. We would do the data analysis on the kind of homes that people were living in and the kind of problems they were facing. And we, we were coming up with, we kept coming back to the same question. Well, you know, we have a high level of home ownership in Philadelphia, but people are living in homes that are in, in extreme states of disrepair. And it's very expensive for people to live in homes in disrepair, right? Um, so, you know, you've got your leaky windows, and so your heating costs are really high. Um, and, and, um, and, it, and they eat a huge percentage of their income. So we kept thinking to ourselves, you know, this is leading us to the conclusion that why should we be advocating for, you know, supportive home ownership? And we came to our research partners with this, and, and, and so their first reaction is, this isn't really the story we want to tell. Right now we're advocating for home repair, and, and so, you know, and, 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 but through that conversation, we didn't give up that part of the story, right? That part of the story is there, and we insisted on telling that part of the story. That's part of what I talk about when I say being open to unexpected findings, including findings that might not be what you had hoped for if you had a goal as an advocate. On the other hand, in our conversations with them, and their challenges to us about that, we came to understand home ownership at a whole different level. Home ownership, we realized, you know, we would have stopped there. But then the talk with them, it made us realize that home ownership is actually very, very important despite the disrepair. And it is so in several ways. So home ownership is important because when you look at the alternative, right, it's not so great. It's not like we have good rental housing. It's not like we have enough rental housing. And so a lot of times the alternative to living in a home that's very expensive to maintain and is falling apart around your ears is that you may be actually be out on the streets. And so looking at they pushed us to look at the alternatives and lead us to say, well, yeah, actually, you're right. We should be um, looking at programs that are geared at low-income homeowners. The other thing 
is that their understanding of community and their putting in touch, us in touch, for example, for some of the qualitative interviews that we did with homeowners, made us understand that regardless of whether home ownership is helpful economically, people feel that it's important for them. And that's not something that would have come through if it was only research-driven by a bunch of researchers. That comes through from their intimate knowledge of community, right? As so if, you know, a person tells me that she cares about living in a home because she feels it makes her feel like it's part of a community, even if it's driven by societal, societal you know, um, understandings that we could critique, right, you know, as being critical and analytic researchers, if it still means something to those people in the community, then it's important for us to consider. And that's not something that I think we would have considered if we were coming from the outside and we stopped our conversation by saying, this is what we found, and not talking to our WCRP advocate counterparts. And I think that that does tie into our social work um, values. Um, we're not doing this for our own sake or to get the money that they pay us for the resource or to keep our jobs. We're doing this because we care about the community, that the community is facing problems. And for me to determine for them where they should be is anathema to social work values. Which, which brings up another question for me, which, so who did you write this book for? Well, I, you know, I think it's really interesting to get back into the book and think about it because uh, as it evolved, it became clear to us that we were writing on multiple levels to a variety of audiences. So um, Corey insisted that we change the subtitle to have it, it advocates in there. And after a while, I started to appreciate that you know, we were writing for advocates who um, very often are very skeptical about research and the role it can play, uh, very often because they see researchers as preoccupied with trying to get the truth objectively, independently, irrespective of how it might matter to what they're trying to achieve. And so that became an important audience. Uh, we were also interested in talking to our research colleagues uh, about how uh, professional social work researchers uh, have different ways of going about doing research and that it doesn't have to be disconnected. So there's a pushback on that side as well. But we also, I think, felt that we were talking to uh, social work practitioners who very often um, feel that research doesn't really speak to them, say, like, what is evidence-based practice? Does it really relate to what I'm trying to do? How do I apply this research? And we have a discussion that runs through the book about that as well. And, but I think in the end, we really felt we were also talking to students, students not just at the doctoral level that are going to be interested in learning to do research and contribute to social work knowledge, but also master's students who are required to take uh, research courses where the texts are often sort of recipe, cookbook, right. method-driven uh, uh, rules and how to actually conduct research uh, where they often don't see the connection to the idea of like helping people, caring about people, trying to make things better in the world. The book was also an attempt to make <clears throat> excuse things more transparent and for everybody. You know, initially I was thinking, well, we were in some ways trying to expose the research pro 
process for advocates who are thinking about, you know, we don't really understand what goes on here. We're not really sure why we need this, but we've been told that we need this because we needed to keep our funding or we needed to convince policymakers, but we don't really understand how it happens and we don't really understand why it's important. Um, and it's not really important. It's just something that we need to do because we're required to do it. Um, and that means that a lot of um, advocates are now having to engage with research without having the leverage and the understanding to actually impact what questions get asked, how the research gets used, how we understand our findings. Um, and I think by making that process more human, by telling our own story, um, it is more engaging. It also gives them leverage when they are working with researchers to figure out what questions to ask, how to hold researchers accountable, demystifying the research process. Um, and so I think that that was also the demystification and the humanizing the research process. So a lot of times you'll look at a research textbook, right, and it says this is what you should do, as if you know learning how to do that sprung fully formed, you know, from the authors. But everyone who's engaged in research goes through a process of learning how to do it, figuring out what it means. The other thing is that the book really, you know, we can think it's about research or for research classes, but I also think it would be useful, for example, in policy classes or community organizing classes, um, thinking about, you know, if I'm going to be involved in an organizing effort, how would I use research in order to enhance those efforts? How do I understand research that other people are throwing at me? Um, how do I think about how to package this or how to explain this to a policy audience? So as you guys were just talking about, you know, there's this idea in most research textbooks that uh, research is um, sort of objective and it, and it follows a recipe. Um, uh, and, it, and it seems to be impersonal. But in your text, you really argue that passion and a dedication to social justice is essential to doing good research. And you suggest that social work's traditional approach really takes the advocacy and social justice out of research. Um, and you, you argue that social work research doesn't have to be that way and shouldn't be that way. So how can someone be passionate about a topic without being too biased? And how can someone who's passionate about a cause be a good researcher? I think there's actually two questions in there. So maybe I'll take the first one first. Again, I'm gonna draw on our research on our code of ethics, right? So in social work, we have a value system that's in place. Some of those values are about um, non-disempowering practice, about um, trying to work with people who might be marginalized, whether they're mar marginalized from a policy arena or societally, um, and for trying to work towards justice and equity and fairness. And you can't take any of the activities that we're required to do as social workers or social work educators and separate them from the value base. The value base applies to all of our activities. And those activities include research, right? That is something that we are supposed to be doing. It's not separate from, um, it's not a different activity. So those values are supposed to infuse research, be at the basis of research. So I don't really see that as social workers, we can be ethical social workers if we separate the values. It's not, we don't do research for its own sake, right? We do research within the framework and for the purposes of furthering our ethical commitments. Um, to our clients, and our clients are broadly defined, right? If you look at the definition of clients, it includes individuals and families and communities and society. And so we need to think about the impact of our research on all of our clients. And we also need to think about um, you know, who we do work with. 
So if we're doing research, are we, so it's the outcome of the research, but it's also the process of the research. Are we doing research in a way that is respectful? Are we doing research in a way that is empowering, or at least not disempowering, right? Are we doing research in a way that is just and equitable? Um, so I think that needs to be really where we start from always in all of our activities. Um, I don't know if you want to speak to that before I, we kind of tackle the next part, which is, can you in fact do good research, you know, but I don't know if you want to speak to the ethical mm, piece. Well, there. I think they're related. I'm, you know, I think, uh, so I think to some extent our book is promoting research and the role it can play in social work practice, in social work advocacy, in social change efforts. On the other hand, in many ways the book is also a critique of mainstream conventional ways of how to conduct research as social workers, as professionals, as scholars, researchers, and so on and so forth. So it's change research is a pun, right? It, uh, you have to change how you do research if you're going to do research that promotes change. So it cuts in both directions. And, and I think that's because we recognize that values, as Corey was saying, inform the entire research process from the topics you select to the efforts you put forward on how to design a project to uh, the methods of data collection to, of course, how you interpret that and draw conclusions and how you suggest that relates to practice or efforts to uh, work in the community. And so I, you know, I think it's really clear we totally fundamentally reject the fact-value dichotomy, and we want researchers to be more sensitive to how values are infused throughout the entire research process. And I think when people start to do that and they become more self-conscious, more reflexive about uh, the role of values, their own values uh, in research, maybe by uh, doing what we did, which is reflect upon our own involvement in the research process, in the advocacy effort, and how our own values, our own uh, interests, our own concerns were very much constantly being challenged by others, and we had to think about that. I think it's going to lead to a more robust objectivity, a more uh, reflexive objectivity that's aware of the inelimitable role that values play in all research, regardless of how we want to talk about it. Yeah, um, and I think there is a way in which, I mean, I, I, I want to be clear also about our, our right, the thing about the, the social work code of ethics, right? We are supposed to do research, right? It just, it, it's not that you say, oh, we have values and that we only do research if they're, you know, right? It's not that, it's that we, so to reiterate that Sandy is saying we need to embrace research, but we need to think about what kind of research and how it's done and why. Um, and when I think about your question, you know, can you do research in a way that's biased? I mean, in some ways what we're saying, there's always a bias, right? Research is created by human beings, with human beings, for human beings. And so the idea that there can be no bias. And so really for me, it's more about being transparent about what your bias is, if you have one. Um, it's about thinking systematically, right? Um, and I would say one of the other hallmarks is thinking about, you know, being open to unexpected findings. And those are things that might, and 
Roland and I have actually written about this in some of our other pieces that that um, were part of the basis for the book, right? You know, what happens? Is there some line? Researchers and advocates are not fungible, right? There is some line where you say we work together, but we have different roles, um, and where would that role start to start to blur in a way that researchers can no longer be valuable to advocacy efforts because they've lost both the legitimacy and the skills and the crafts that make them valuable, and I think those might be some of the out outside parameters, right? You know, the minute we are not open to unexpected findings, it doesn't mean we shouldn't grapple with them and what do we do with them, but the idea that, you know, we can change it for whatever, whatever is happening, no. So that would be one hallmark of what keeps a researcher a researcher even when they're involved in advocacy efforts. Again, being systematic, you know, being clear about what, and transparent, being clear about what steps you're taking and being willing to be open um, to debate your findings, right? To be in dialogue both with an academic community and with a community of practitioners and with a policy community and being able to reason through saying, okay, this is why I'm saying what I'm saying and being open to taking in new information. And I think those were some of the hallmarks of what would keep researchers honest as researchers and what would keep them valuable then to advocacy efforts, right? Because the advocates don't want to lose our value as researchers because then we're just more advocates. And, and we as research also have our own professional norms, right, and our own integrity about our research. Um, and so I don't think that the idea of having values is mutually exclusive, um, and I don't think the idea of bias um, precludes you from being a good researcher as long as you're open with yourself and with others about what those biases might be. I think there's a real temptation to think, oh, the minute you're working on something relevant, right, you know, as opposed to something very dif distant, an ivory tower, that it's somehow tainted. Um, but there is a growing, and we do write about this in some of the initial chapters in the book, I mean, there's a growing trend across discipline, right? If we're talking about um, public sociology, right? Or um, we're, uh, of, of, if we're t um, talking about frenetic social, frenetic, P-H-R-O-N-E-T, um, social science, a desire to be involved. Why are we doing research? I mean, if you look back at the, if, at the roots of social science, it really was to sort of think about relevant social problems and how we can change those. And so that somehow the idea that if we're so distanced from that and if we stop caring um, that that makes us better researchers, I'm not sure that that really holds water or if it really is what we're calling traditional social science. And that's the other piece I think that, that when you had asked the question about you know traditional um, social work research. Um, if you really look at our roots in social work research, so the traditional or the pre-social work tradition, if you look at people like Jane Addams, they were not doing distance research. They were not doing research because they didn't care. Um, and it didn't mean that they weren't doing good research. So if we look at our roots in social work, our roots is in research that makes a difference, um, where there's a, an important value on research, what it can do for people, but doing it in a way that does not um, work against the values or the very things that we're interested um, in promoting or shoring up. Um, so I think in social work, there are two traditions, right? There's the real traditional tradition, our roots, and we do write about that. And then there's the new tradition, um, which is more driven in part by funding and in part by ideas of positivistic social science. Um, but I think if we really look at our roots and we really look at why it is, you know, what makes social work research maybe different from other forms of research, or a good leader in the movement to think about doing relevant research, um, 
that makes a difference to communities and that takes in a polyphony of voices, you know, we have, we're a good example in social work and that's something that we should be bringing forward and sharing and talking about rather than trying to, you know, run after and do good research in someone else's eyes or um, what we think will get us more funding. So Corey, I thought it was really interesting. You were, you're really emphasizing this point that when social work researchers stop being value-based, is it really social work research that we're doing? What constitutes valuable research in academia does not necessarily overlap with what constitutes valuable research in the community. And furthermore, community agencies deal with time frames and evaluation needs that are very different than those of typical academic research. So how can researchers work with advocates in a way that's respectful to their goals while retaining their scholarly integrity? Again, I mean, I think that there are um, factors in academia that push certain ways and then factors in the outside world that push um, other ways. Um, The most important thing, I think, when researchers are working with academics is to lay out, you know, what are the factors that are influencing their choices? So when researchers are working with academics or... Sorry, when researchers are working with community groups, right? So if the community group has a time frame and they have, for example, the research has a purpose. If you think about our book, you know, there um, there was a particular campaign that they were trying to, they were trying to get money in the city council, um, city council to vote money in a home repair budget, right? So there's a certain time frame for that. There's a certain context for that, right? So being upfront about what that context is and what the parameters are is helpful in negotiating, well, can this be a mutually beneficial project? And not ignoring that, because if the projects are not mutually beneficial, they're probably not going to work. And so what would be beneficial to a researcher that wouldn't be beneficial to the advocates? Okay, so for example, and, and this might differ from researcher to researcher. So take me, because the book is very personal, but personalized accounts. So I'm on a tenure track position. Um, at a university that prizes research. And so that means if I want to keep my job for a length of time, what I need to do is I need to be publishing in peer-reviewed journals. Um, I need to have a certain output. I need to do a certain type of research. And it needs to be published in a certain arena. That is a process that usually takes a little bit more time. The products that I might produce that would be accepted in a scholarly publication might be pitched in a way that would not be helpful in a policy arena. It might be a little bit opaque. Um, it might be too long. Um, it, it it might use language that is off-putting. Nobody will care about my methods. So that's something I need to be upfront about. On the other hand, we have advocates who have specific goals right, and needs that they have. Sandy and I, we do, and Roland, we write about this in the book. We are both very lucky that we are at institutions that provide some supports. So while I do have those factors that might push against me working less with advocacy groups, I mean, that's the other part of it, that this kind of research is very time-consuming, right? And if I'm supposed to produce 12 articles in six years, I might not have the time to sit with the advocates and I try and understand what they're trying to do and then trying to explain my research process to them. And, um, and so I think that's another factor that pushes against academics working with community groups or with advocates. Can I, for example, produce two different kinds of reports, right? A report that would be valuable in a policy arena, but that is important to be based on my research. But can I also maybe write an article from this that will be useful to people outside of the city of Philadelphia who are thinking about home repair? No, I think there are real challenges. I mean, this project 
was kind of interesting because first, uh, one way of looking at it, just the way it was uh, authorized and funded and, and the way we got to uh, kick it off, we go to the Institutional Review Board to get approval to do research with the community uh, so that they can improve the housing budget, the home repair budget, get the affordable housing trust fund created in Philadelphia. And, and so we get that approved. And then after a while, I said to Corey and Roland, I said, you know, you guys ought to go back to the IRB and get a second project approved, a project to study the project. So there, right there you see, there's like, well, we're doing research in the community, and that's for the community. Uh, in that sense, but then we also decided to have a second project, which became the book, which is sort of reflecting upon our own involvement. And uh, so I think it can be a win-win. I personally reject uh, the idea that there really should be a disjuncture, or there is a disjuncture between doing scholarly research uh, that's objective, scientific, and so on, and doing community-based research, which is you know, sort of often dismissed as by the seat of your pants and partisan and so on and so forth. So I reject the idea that they're that knowledge for its own sake. Knowledge doesn't have a sake. Knowledge, as people often say, uh, is to serve some end. And that end, I would hope to be laudable, that it improves the well-being of people and the community. And so for me, it's never been uh, this kind of thing where you have to choose. I do think institutionally, uh, what's interesting is there's this kind of verisimilitude. Just as we were writing about the neoliberalization of housing policy and the process by which programs get evaluated and decided and how it's very much performance-driven, you have to document outcomes, so on and so forth, in ways that often uh, I think is too bottom-line oriented and is dismissive of alternative approaches like helping low-income people stay in their homes. There's a neoliberalization of higher education, of social work, where high-impact journal performance has to be demonstrated that you've published in X amount of articles in X amount of journals that are this level of visibility, irrespective of the real quality or to what extent it contributes to the community. So for me, I am not really that interested in method-driven research, though I respect all my colleagues and all those methods that enable us to produce credible information that's going to serve the community. So if you want to do clinical trials and that's going to help, great. If you're going to do surveys, that's great. If you're going to do uh, a, an analysis of secondary data that has been produced in you know, highly quantitative ways, that's great. On the other hand, I think it should be problem-driven. And that's why I'm a proponent of mixed methods. Choose a problem that's related to making the world a better place, a problem that people are struggling with, and then use as many different methods as you can in as competent and capable a fashion, professional, however you want to talk about it, scientific, to address that problem. Problem-driven research from the bottom up that helps the community struggle and address the concerns it has is the real kind of knowledge that I think, in the end, I think Corey's right, that. Uh, we haven't been entirely neoliberalized, that there's enough of our colleagues and enough of our institutional leaders appreciate good work that really serves the community. And if you just ignore all of the other pressures, I think uh, you can get that done. That's one of the reasons we don't dictate a particular kind of research. Really, the only kind of research that we say must be done is thoughtful research that is filtered through the, the lens of social work values rather than any particular method.
right? It's really about the stance that we take when we're approaching research. And if we take a research stance, a change research stance, what we really would be doing, we would be thinking about the impact that our research has and you know, who it has an impact on and then involving people in the broadest way possible um, at every aspect in the research stage, including you know, how it gets used. I think we're at pains in the book, and I want to underscore that here, is that we're about trying to open things up, creating more possibilities, that there should be methodological pluralism, that there's a time and place for a variety of different types of research. Some of it is not intimately involved in the communities, uh, where it's time to step back and try to get some facts, independent. There, there is a place for that. I think what we're trying to do is trying to right the balance that things have become a little bit too imbalanced where more and more pressure is to simply do the research independent of the community, uh, where we've sort of like lost our way, where we're preoccupied with the method, we're preoccupied with getting the evidence irrespective of whether it's within a certain context or whether it really serves a certain community. And we're simply trying to right the balance and say there's a place for being connected to the community and that that's really important. And we're losing sight of that as pressure grows for us to document performance, whether it's evidence-based practice or program evaluation or performance management systems or the neoliberalization of doing good generally to document, uh, statistically demonstrate performance according to standards that are set by somebody else. And so I think we were trying to just say, well, let's not forget where we come from and what we've been involved in traditionally and how important that is and sort of bring that back in to not shut it down, but open it up. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us about change research. I hope that lots of folks read the book because the stories that you tell in there are uh, just excellent illustrations of a lot of these concepts. Thank you. Thank Jonathan. you, Jonathan, for having us. I'm Jonathan Singer, and thanks for being with me today for another episode of the Social Work Podcast. If you missed an episode or have suggestions for future episodes, please visit socialworkpodcast.com. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit our online store at cafepress.com slash swpodcast. To all the social workers out there, keep up the good work. We'll see you next time at the Social Work Podcast.